are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Guilty. That was the plea entered by two former state lawmakers in federal court just 24 hours ago. Joining us for the long read today is HPR's political analyst and a regular contributor, Neil Milner. Good morning. Good morning. So guilty as charged. Yes, they were. And, and they pled out. There was no trial. They pled very quickly. You know, one thing that struck me as we were learning more about the details in this case against those two lawmakers is that it dates back to 2014. And I, I just can't get the visual of, you know, setting a trap for a rat. <laughs> well, we don't know anything about uh, traps or the extermination or the exterminators yet and, and why it took so long or or what the case involved. It's pretty clear that it's obvious that the uh, feds were involved in it because it was a, a federal statute that they violated, and that means that the FBI was involved. But how the surveillance went on and why it took so long and, and all those uh, kinds of things and where what it meant to start in 2014 was money exchange hands, that's all for later, and we may not find out all of this because it's, it's not going to go to trial. So we don't know that. We know how much they got. They know for we know for what they got, um, and uh, we know that it's a the bribery, uh, which we'll use the term, even though they were charged with something else. The bribery was blatant, uh, so blatant and so obvious that it's really kind of a small time issue. I don't mean morally a small time issue. It's a kind of small time way to get business done, as opposed to more subtle ways. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the visual where they were describing the cash in the envelope, trying to hide it under a floor mat. You know, it's like, mahalo me, I mahalo you. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of out of a... It's like someone making a bad version of the Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12 movie, where you try to hide the money. You know, like nobody looks under the seat cushion for money in a car, right? So, um, but, you know, that, that it's easy to laugh at, but the fact that it was money exchanged in the car... Uh, the fact that they were being surveilled at the time and they were caught dead to rights. Um, there are all kinds of ways that political influence occurs, which are some legally, some uh, quasi-legally, that really don't involve anything as blatant as that. And that, to me, is the bigger issue when you look at what political influence is like as opposed to what bribery is like. Well, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think, people, or a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of uh, tongue-wagging, you know, over this. And, you know, we've seen the politicians start to return these campaign contributions uh, because, uh, uh, you know, person A, who has been identified as, as Mr. Choi, uh, Milton Choi, uh, gave to a lot of lawmakers, not just to, you know, Kalani English and, uh, and Ty Cullen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always this kind of hand-wringing, and then there's always, this, and then when I say always, I mean whenever uh, there's a kind of a, uh, a person who was charged with a crime nationally or whatever uh, has given money, there's an attempt to, to give the money back um, and, to, and to do that. But the interesting thing, of course, is that there's no indication that your average legislator, or I think even Governor Ige got some donation, from this, that they even knew anything about the donation and that there is any evidence that that affected um, politics. You got you have to think about uh, Milton Choi in really two ways, as a big-time, as a big-timer and as a small-timer. As a big-timer, for a few years, he and his family donated a lot of money, uh, depending on how you count it, $160,000 to over $300,000, to all kinds of politicians in a blanket sort of way. Uh, we know nothing that there was ever a quid pro quo there. I doubt if there was in the direct uh, chips, hotel rooms, and castles that were with Cullen and, and so on. So you had this kind of thing going on. This is what the big operators do. This is how influence works. You, you do that to establish a presence, to be around at the right time, to develop legitimacy, in a, in a political sense, and so that maybe you'll pick up some contracts, including some no-bid contracts, which he did. That's what he was doing for a long time, and that's what most of the politicians who got money, whatever, uh, really, that's what the process was. And they're going through this process of giving it back 
because it's tainted. It's politically tainted. It's not legally tainted. On the other hand, then for some reason, uh, Joy becomes a small timer and decides that he's got to he's got to actually bribe someone with money and uh, all these other kinds of little things that went along with it. And it's interesting to me why he moved into the into the small timer thing. But that the politicians giving the money back is understandable, and the. Um, and the tears that they're shedding are not necessarily crocodile tears. I think it caught a lot of them off guard. But let's be realistic here. The reason they're giving the money back is they don't want to be tainted by this. They don't, they don't, it's not worth that little bit of money that they got from them. But that doesn't say that it worked with all the rest of them the same way it worked with Cullen and with English. Well, you know, and this is an election year. Yeah. You know, so you've got folks that are running to to keep their seat or running for a higher office. But, yeah, there is that concern that this doesn't look good for incumbents. Well, you're right. But here's the, here's the thing about elections. Corruption seems to be, there's some research that shows this, not just statewide, but nationally. One of the ways to beat an, an incumbent, maybe, is if you charge them with corruption or if they're charged, if they are charged with corruption. That doesn't mean incumbents lose. We have a, a number of recent records in Congress where, in a strong, in a, in a strong, say, Republican state, that that uh, people will vote for the Republican even if they're charged. But the point is that in order to make corruption a definitive issue in an election, you need to have candidates who can effectively make the argument. Now, that sounds like a simplistic statement, right? But think about how elections work here and races work here in a heavily one-party Democratic state. Most of the time, there aren't even, well, most seats, overwhelming majority of seats are held by Democrats. Most of the time, they, of course, the incumbents win. Most of them don't have significant primary fights, and most of them don't have any significant Republican opposition in the election. So to put that more simply, in order for this to become a significant political issue in the midterms and in the 2022 election, somebody with some significant clout is going to be able to do this. It's not clear that there are any Republican candidates statewide or for Congress or what are you know, political candidates generally who are going to be strong enough to, to, you know, to make the argument. So that doesn't take away from the bad behavior of bribery, but it suggests that, you, that there's a difference between labeling something as bad and actually effectively manifesting it by beating people that you think are tainted in an election. Yeah, I mean, if you want to appeal to those voters who want to throw the bums out, right, you want to be a fresh face, but, uh, yeah, fresh face. You know what? That's true. And we're always talking along those lines about fresh faces and throwing things out. But when it comes to the actual electoral process, that's, that's easier said than done because you need effective candidates to run against uh, someone that you want to throw out. And that's not easy to do. It's, it's terribly hard for Republicans. It's also hard for some Democrats to, you know, to, to challenge some Democrats. So I guess what I'm saying is I understand the legislature's concern here, their political concern. I'd worry, too, if I were running for office, you know, in 2022 and even for governor. But the first thing I would do after I worried about it is to look at, uh, let's see, who's running against me. And for a lot of them, it may be nobody. And for a lot of others, it may be, well, yeah, but that's fairly weak candidate. So that's what you have to watch for. Not just that it's an issue, but who's making it and how effectively are they making it? Yeah, well, we did see uh, the Senate issue a statement and the House Speaker issue a statement basically uh, condemning what the two lawmakers did in, you know, as they pled guilty yesterday. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I would hope so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a kind of a no-brainer. Again, that's not taken away from their sincerity, but you better do that. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens election time. Yeah, well, or much before election time to see how, how this may play out in other ways. Yes. Well, thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care. That was Neil Milner, political analyst and regular contributor here at HPR, talking about political corruption for our biweekly segment that we call The Long View.
We continue the conversation around this scandal on today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beats political reporter Kevin Dayton joins us live. Good morning. Hi, good morning. So you've been talking to a number of people about the developments in this case. What'd you find? Well, you know, around the country, we often see a pattern that really ugly scandals like this tend to create some pressure for some kind of reform. Um, And that seems to be partly because lawmakers feel the sort of high profile wrongdoing reflects badly on them personally, even if by association, even if they didn't do anything personally wrong. So when a high profile people like, you know, Senate Majority Leader, former Senate Majority Leader Kalani English or Ty Cullen uh, plead guilty to wire fraud charges, as they did yesterday, you would expect some sort of public discussion about ethics or campaign spending reforms will grow out of that. And as was just pointed out, this is an election year, so the optics of this are, are really important to incumbents uh, at the legislature. House Speaker Scott Psyche has hinted at some sort of reform package that will be forthcoming in a, a couple of times, but his proposals haven't been made public yet, so we don't quite know where he's headed yet. And so you, um, you, you also talked to um, uh, the campaign's uh, spending office as well, the commission. Yeah, I mean, one area that seems like a likely target for reformers would be the laws and rules that govern campaign spending, exactly, in Hawaii. And uh, remember the fellow who allegedly distributed those illegal bribes, um, Milton Choi, also handed out many large, apparently legal campaign donations. In fact, Choi and his family members and employees from his various companies have donated more than 356,000 political campaigns since 2014, which for a small state like Hawaii is a, is a sizable amount of money. There is a sense among some that um, while that may have been legal, it shouldn't have been. And remember that Choi's companies were also contracting or subcontracting with the state and with Maui County. So the many donations that he made kind of smacks of what, what has been called pay-to-play, which is actually banned or are very tightly restricted in some other states. And to give just a couple of examples, Connecticut, Illinois, Washington, D.C., they've all tried to restrict or prohibit government contractors from making political donations um, to, in an effort to ban pay-to-play. And if you're, you've been watching politics in those states, you already know that Connecticut and Illinois both passed laws um, after corruption, those laws, after corruption scandals broke in those states. And, you know, I know it's, it seems like decades, I think we've been talking about, you know, banning fundraisers during session. I think Common huh. Cause has, has really tried to get that through, and they've, you know, not been successful in doing that. Absolutely. And, you know, basically uh, Common Cause has, has been looking at a ban on banning those events for lawmakers during the legislative session because that session runs from basically January until May. And when you hold a campaign fundraiser during those months, it sets up a kind of a scenario where you could be, as a legislator, a committee chair, you could be holding a hearing uh, in the morning uh, on a bill that's, that's vitally important to a number of people and then holding a, a nice campaign event that evening um, and basically essentially be soliciting, soliciting um, contributions from those very same people. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable, understandably. Um, and again, it has that sort of pay-to-play feel to it. Um, banning those mid-session fundraisers has been discussed for years, as you pointed out, but the idea was never incorporated into state law. Um, one, of the, one of the counter-arguments to that is neighbor island legislators have complained that, you know, they're in Honolulu, they're doing work during session, that's the ideal time for them to hold fundraisers, and they don't want that ban. Um, so we'll have to see whether that ends up uh, as part of the agenda for this year. And the Campaign Spending Commission, I mean, they've got some bills in the hopper, but would it help in, a, you know, a case like this with the contributions and the bribery? They, uh, well, the, the sense that I have at the moment, they have, a, they do have a number of bills that are in pending before the legislature, but they're uh, more along the lines of sort of technical fixes. Um, I think the, the blow-up of the, of the charges and the guilty pleas caught everyone off guard. And I'm not sure that everyone was prepped and ready to dive into the campaign spending issue in a serious way this year um, that, that now the public might want. I mean, I would expect that people from the public are contacting their legislators and saying, hey, something needs to be done to fix this. We're not comfortable with the way this has been playing out. Yeah, well, it, it's been a, a very... It's been a whirlwind, very fast case uh, since the story broke. And, uh, yeah, now we've got guilty pleas and then sentencing uh, in July. Absolutely. And, and you know, pay-to-play, is, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if they can actually pass some legislation that makes a difference in it. Um, you know, we have an existing pay-to-play law right now, but it just doesn't work well because, uh, you know, it bans contributions from contractors 
but you can have other people associated with the company make the contributions instead on a personal level. Yeah. So you can get around it. We'll see how they tighten that up. But thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was political reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his coverage on this issue, visit Silbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Coconut Island is the destination for today's Backyard Quiz. Not the one in Oahu's Kaneohe Bay, though. This morning, we're off to Hawaii Island and a small public park that shares the same name. Some people say Hilo's Coconut Island has healing properties rooted in its Hawaiian name and in the myth of the demigod Maui. According to legend, Maui wanted to pull the islands together so that the uh, people of Hawaii could walk from one end of the kingdom to the other. He knew he could do it using his magic fish hook, but he needed the strength of the chiefs to pull his canoe as he raised the islands from the water. And as long as no one turned around to see what he was doing, the magic would work. What happens next? We'll have the end of the story later in the show. But as for today's quiz, be the first one to call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 and give us the Hawaiian name of Hilo's Coconut Island. And we'll send you our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. live in Hawaii and suffer from gout, well, you're not alone. Over 20% of Hawaii's adult population have been told they have some form of rheumatic disease, according to the Arthritis Foundation of Hawaii. Gout is the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. It is painful and sometimes unpredictable. Rock Bonos lives in Kaneohe and is of Hawaiian descent. He talked to the conversations Russell Subiono about his experience with gout. What does the pain feel like when you have a gout flare-up? Imagine, um, you know, you get stabbed by like 6,000 needles in one area. And then once they go through the skin, they just go into different directions. So you're just like, it's bur- it burns, it's excruciating, but it's very sharp. You don't even want to, you don't even want to touch the area, not even on the outside. It's super sensitive, but it's more of the, the psychological thing, right? Because if you're sitting still, not doing anything, you don't feel any pain. It's only when you're moving, like even you don't even need to have any pressure applied. If you're just moving, you start to feel that thing just tickle a little bit. And then it gets in your head, right? And you're like, ooh, do I really have to go to the kitchen right now? You know, and then of course you got to go to the bathroom. So it's like, how am I going to get there? Damn it. Don't want to use the crutches. My arms are sore already. So... I can't tell you how many times I just walk like a dog on my hands and knees. Does it affect one place regularly or does it kind of switch up from time to time? For me, it's my, it's my heel. So when I first had an attack, it was in my left heel. And now every time I, I get an attack, it's in my right heel. Is alcohol your primary trigger or do you have dietary triggers as well? So the first time I ever had a full-blown one, it was right before Christmas break, and one of our fellow teachers came from Louisiana, and she made gumbo, and I knew it was going to be good. 
So I get down there and it's a five gallon bucket full of crab claws and shrimp and sausage and corn. And it was incredible. I must have had three or four bowls, went home, had a nap. I woke up and that's when I had my first attack. And so they always say it's like shellfish or, you know, something you eat from the ocean. Yeah. So then I tried to wait it out for a day. Still the same. So I, I went to my doctor and he's like, all right, we'll take some blood work. And my uric acid levels were over seven, which is, I think like the trigger for an attack is like over six. So I was one full gradient over that. So, yeah. And I told him what I had had and he goes, oh yeah, it's probably that. And then that's when we got to talking about everything else. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm a pretty frequent drinker at least two, three times a week, you know, at least probably 10 to 15 drinks a week. It's like, yeah, you're going to want to cut that. You know, your body is not breaking down these crystals in your liver because you're overweight and you're drinking a lot and seafood probably doesn't help. When you do have a flare-up, how do you manage the pain? And then how does it go away? I think it's like a, it's sort of like an alarm, right? Where you, you just get like an early signal. So then you just start, I got to flush the system. Nothing's touching this liver but water, you know, and then nothing but nothing process is getting into this body. And then I'm really easy going on my feet. Usually I'll walk a couple miles a day, but I, the, the, the walking is out for that day. Like I'm not even trying to, so it's in my feet. That's where I know it's going to be the worst. So I'll do everything else, but actions below the belt, essentially. Yeah. And then, you know, like if I feel a tickle, I'll take it easy for two, three days and then I'll be good. But if it's already past the point of no return, then it probably takes like a solid two to three days and just medication you get from the doctor, whether it's like strong, what is it? Anti-inflammatories like endomethacin, you know, or even just taking some ibuprofen 800. But yeah, you're, you're laid up and then it magically disappears. You know, a couple, you, you'll flex your, like for me, I'll flex my foot a little bit and I can just, I can feel a little bit and I'll go, okay, not, not time to put weight on it. And then some mornings I'll just flex my foot and I'll feel nothing. And I'll go, great, put my foot down. And you're just like, it's almost like learning to walk again. That was Kaneohe resident Rock Bono sharing his experience of living with gout. People of Pacific Islander or Asian descent are at an increased risk for the condition due to several factors, including genetic disposition and diet. But even with the high rate of diagnosis here in our state, the Arthritis Foundation of Hawaii says there's still an urgent need to provide these patients with better care for their condition. HPR's Russell Subiano sat down with the foundation's executive director, Marshawn Martin, to learn more about gout and what more can be done for those who suffer from it. Can you describe physiologically what gout is and how it impacts the body. Yes, so gout is a form of arthritis or a rheumatic disease. And what happens is your body produces uric acid in your bloodstream at an abundance. And when it's elevated like that, that uric acid then forms these needle-like crystals that get lodged in your joints. And that causes obviously inflammation, severe pain, and these flare-ups that individuals with gout suffer from. From what I hear, the gout flare-ups tend to happen in certain places. I, it seems to me like most people experience it in the ankle, in the knee. Is that more common than other areas? That is what's usually reported. Is it, As a matter of fact, it's even more specific. The big toe, for some reason, is where a lot of patients suffer with it first. However, with that being said, there are patients that have severe pain in their eyes. You know, all these areas where you wouldn't think or just overall body pain because it's in your bloodstream. Who gets gout? Is it hereditary? Is it something that, that's food related or environment related? How do you get gout? It's all of the above. Genetics definitely play into a big factor in that. You know, as a matter of fact, one in five people living in Hawaii suffer with some form of arthritis and gout being one of those. So it's very prevalent in our community. Asian Pacific Islanders have the genetic composition to be at a higher risk for developing gout. And I have a patient advocate for one of the pharmaceutical companies recently tell me that Hawaii has the highest rate of gout than any state in the nation simply because of the genetics here. And when it comes to how do you get it, there are several factors. Of course, genetics isn't the only factor. It is definitely a dietary issue as well. It could be stress-related. 
there is, or if you have a severe illness, you can develop gout, you know, any type of flare up that can, you know, happen with another illness or disease can trigger an onset of gout. It's higher prevalence in males for some reason, males over 40 have a higher tendency to have gout and women postmenopausal have a higher tendency to have gout. In general, what tends to be the dietary trigger for gout? Red meat, some seafood, and beer specifically. All of those contain purines and the purines are what trigger flare-ups for the most part. The good news is there's things you can do at home, of course, watch your diet, but water really helps. A high consumption of fluids that's not alcohol or beer and not sugary sodas help. It flushes out that uric acid from your system and helps with the flare-ups. I was just thinking, man, if you're a local brada, you know, you, you like your <laughs> you like your Calvi plate lunch and your beer, highly yeah. likely it's going to affect yeah. your gout. Okay. Yeah, you know, in large consumptions, you know, we, we always want to say moderation, have a well-rounded diet, but everything in moderation. When someone realizes that they have gout, why is it important to get diagnosed as early as possible? Number one is simply to manage the pain. But gout can lead into other medical conditions, some of them being heart disease, diabetes, in severe cases, increased hospitalization, sure, and in severe cases, mortality. So it's not something to be ignored, not only for lifespan discussions, right, but also for the quality of life that you want to have. Let's talk about treatment and pain management. What is currently available or what seems to be the most effective treatment out there. Do you get relief from common pain relievers? Are there other treatments that address the root cause? Yes, to all of the above. So I'm not a medical expert. I can't talk on the pharmacological you know, treatments, but they're available. That's the good news. So you can speak to your doctor about medications to take for gout. And you know, our feedback that we receive from patients is that they are you know, beneficial. They do provide that pain relief and, and things for patients. What you can do at home on your own, and we advise only doing that after seeing a doctor. We don't ever want someone to self-diagnose and self-treat without consulting with a physician first. But at home, like I said, plenty of water, fluids. You want to drink eight to 16 cups of water a day to help flush your system of that uric acid. But definitely the dietary uh, considerations, you know, do, try to avoid or limit those things that can trigger a flare-ups. And over-the-counter pain medications can absolutely help as well. And ice, icing a flare-up in the joint specifically helps as well. One interesting fact too is you know, movement helps. While you don't want to overexert yourself and flare up joints and things of that nature, movement helps. And for what, every pound someone might be overweight, it creates an additional four pounds of pressure on the joint. So, you know, any type of activity that can promote some weight loss is also beneficial. What more can be done for gout patients? How can doctors better address this affliction or do we need more research and data to effectively address the issue? You know, until this is cured, we always need to fight for more research and resources for individuals. I think what doctors are already doing in the community, and number one, I, more and more physicians are willing to do community education events, such as the one we have coming up in Maui. And where doctors really just speak to a group and bring in some existing patients that have gout and say, this is what it is to live with gout. This is how you can, what we like to call live yes with gout. You know, you are empowered. You, you can live with gout and live a quality of life, you know. So that's number one. We just want to keep continuing to share the information that we have resources. The best thing individuals can do is, you know, log on to arthritis.org or the uh, Alliance for Gout Awareness websites. Look at, you know, the resources there for gout. We also have a Vim app where they can download it onto their phone and it gives them everything that they can look for as far as resources on support groups, answer questions, articles, research available to them, uh, pain management techniques, dietary articles, things of that nature. So 
I think what we can do as a community is get the word out, keep getting the word out, letting people know that gout exists, how to live with it effectively, and how people can participate in helping in the research. We have an ongoing insight study that we call that if people participate in the study, it gives us that data to move forward in what we can do effectively for our sufferers. You know, and then we have our upcoming arthritis walk, you know, simple fundraising that we can do for our community and, you know, continuing to provide these resources and research for them. Thank you so much for your time and for talking story with me. I appreciate it, Russell. Thanks so much for having us on. That was Marshawn Martin, Executive Director of the Arthritis Foundation of Hawaii. She was talking to HPR's Russell Subiono about gout in the islands. If you suffer from the condition, the foundation will be hosting an in-person forum on gout on Maui this Saturday, February 19th. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. For this week's Manu Minute, University of Hawaii at Hilo, Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the red-billed leothrix. It's a non-native species. Red-billed leothrix are one of the prettiest non-native birds that live in Hawaii. While their body feathers are mostly grayish-green, both males and females have a golden-yellow throat red, orange, and yellow stripes on their wings, and, as their name implies, bright red bills. Leothrix are native to Southeast Asia and Southern China and were introduced first to the island of Kauai as cage birds in the early 1900s. By the 1920s, they were one of the most common birds in the lowland forests of Kauai and on most of the other main Hawaiian islands a few decades after that. Strangely, they seem to have gone extinct on Kauai, even though they're still common on most of the other islands and are resistant to mosquito-transmitted diseases like avian malaria that are causing sharp declines in our native bird species. Even though Leothrix spend most of their time foraging within just a few meters of the forest floor, they can be very hard to find because they're usually in dense shrubs and small trees. Because of this, they're more often heard than seen. They have three main kinds of vocalizations. The first has a variety of notes and is sung by males during breeding season to attract females. A second song is much simpler and is sung by both sexes throughout the year. The third is more of an aggressive, scolding chatter call that's directed at humans or other intruders when they get too close. It sounds a bit like a harsh rattle. If you hear that last sound, you know an angry Leothrix is nearby. Leothrix are common in lowland forests dominated by non-native trees, and in high-elevation forests where the trees and shrubs are almost all native. Because they're such active fruit eaters, leothrix are major dispersers of a variety of seeds, including those from native plants that no longer have other birds to disperse their fruits. Unfortunately, though, leothrix are also one of the major dispersers of invasive plant seeds, such as Clydemia, Myconia, and Scrawberry Guava, into the remaining native forests of Hawaii. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. backyard quiz focused on Hilo's Coconut Island. Though it shares the same name as one in Oahu's Kaneohe Bay, the Hilo Isle has an entirely different history and mythology. 
As the story goes, demigod Maui planned to string the islands together so that people could traverse the entire kingdom easily. He attached his magic fish hook to each island and asked the kingdom's chiefs to paddle the canoe to pull the islands together. But no matter what, they were not to turn to look back at the islands. And just as the island of Maui was about to reach Hawaii Island, one of the chiefs turned his gaze over his shoulder, and the power of Maui's magic fish hook was broken. The island of Maui snapped back to its original position, and the area of land connected to Maui's hook ripped off and remained attached to Hawaii Island. It is now what's commonly referred to as Coconut Island, but its original name is Mokuola, meaning healing island. And that's the answer to today's backyard quiz we were looking for. Congrats to Deborah from Hilo. You got it right. If you have a quiz to share to, uh, with us, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about membership programs at honolulumuseum.org slash join dash give. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with the Hawaii Venture Capital Association and talk to some of the winners of the Entrepreneur Awards. We'll hear from these rising entrepreneurs and learn more about their startup successes throughout 2021. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Beach House Restaurant on Kauai. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application by searching the Beach House Kauai. The traveling exhibit, Americans in the Holocaust, comes to the University of Hawaii's West Oahu Campbell Library this month. Designed by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the exhibit uh, integrates what Americans knew about the Holocaust and whether we could have done more to prevent its atrocities. Professor Daphne Desser uh, teaches autobiographical writing and the Holocaust in film and literature at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. In her research and personal life, she tried to document the stories of Holocaust survivors. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the what she calls the impossible task of capturing the horrors of the Holocaust. Well, I'd like to point out that, first of all, my experience is a little bit different because I am a first-generation American. And so both of my parents came from families that were severely impacted by the Shoah. Most of their extended families did not survive. And so my particular vantage point is that of what is considered now a daughter of a survivor. And along with that terminology is kind of a revised understanding of what it means to be a survivor. So there used to be kind of almost a hierarchy of um, survivors. So those who survived the death camps and those who survived the concentration camps and then those who were hidden finally became recognized. And my father belongs in the category of those who escaped just barely one week before Hitler arrived. He and his just immediate family escaped. Most of the rest of his extended family did not. Um, And for a long time, they weren't considered survivors. And uh, they still would never themselves take on that that title because uh, one does not complain about surviving the Holocaust. But in recent scholarship, what has happened is that we've come to recognize that those who had to leave under such duress and had to leave their community, their language, their sense of belonging, identity behind and could not return to those families that were destroyed, those communities that were destroyed, those cities and villages that were unrecognizable after the war, that they also suffered a great amount of trauma that at the time wasn't necessarily always acknowledged. And so that's the vantage point that I'm bringing to this particular exhibit. In looking at your work and in looking at the conversations you have, you really touch upon how both survivors who escaped the Holocaust or the Shoah and then 
recreated their lives in oftentimes other countries far outside of their country of origin, as well as their children, uh, second and third generation survivors of the Holocaust, didn't have all of the context that they needed in order to process the trauma of what happened to them. Can you talk about how you have worked both in your own experience, but also with other survivors and descendants of survivors to recontextualize this event? Yes, that's a great question. So one of the surprising things for people who have heard about the Holocaust, who have worked about the Shoah in their Jewish communities, is that the first generation often did not talk about their experience. So while the Holocaust or the Shoah in the Jewish community has become kind of a, almost a cornerstone of Jewish identity, um, a sort of a touch point, it's, it's very surprising then for them sometimes to hear that often within the families of those who survived, uh, that they did not talk about the Holocaust. And there are lots of reasons for that um, that I go to in this, to this presentation, but some of them are just sort of psychic survival, that it was too frightening and scary to look at those very traumatic memories that they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to come back from the brink of madness if they did. And of course, some survivors didn't uh, come back from the brink of madness. Some committed suicide, some were um, mentally ill, um, suffering from anxiety and depression. Um, one way of trying to survive was to not pass on any of that to the children, to try to push the trauma behind, to not look back, to focus on the future generation. And so there was a focus on sometimes, and certainly in my family, on sort of hiding the Shoah from the children and not wanting them to carry this burden with them. Now, of course, what happens with family secrets is it's exactly those secrets that the parents want to hide that the children go after. Do you have any examples that you're able to share from your own life or from the work that you've done or stories you've collected from other survivors and descendants of survivors about how these stories bubble to the surface in people's lived experience. I have a story that is connected to my own experience, and it's a fairly recent one, and I think it demonstrates the way in which that history can somehow explode into the present and in unexpected ways. So the story I tell is how I went over to my mom's house, and she now lives near me in a condo, and I brought this sun hat with me that wasn't standing up correctly anymore, and I wanted to see if she would perhaps be able to help me. It had been a Mother's Day gift from my husband and son, so I really wanted to keep it. And I got to her condo and I set the hat in front of her and and explained the situation. And normally she would just dive right in with lots of advice and what to do. And this time she didn't. And she just sort of looked off like in another world. And she didn't speak for a while. And I really I, I just hadn't seen her act like this before. And so finally, she said that this hat reminded her of this terrible story. In my childhood, my mother would have never, ever told me this story. At that point, she was in her 80s. And I think something shifts, has shifted from my father and shifted from my mother. The 80s, they sort of began to tell the stories. And for my father, it was in his 90s. The, the, the constraint that they put on saving this material from their kids just kind of let loose. And she told me about this mother and this daughter who, who had survived the death camps and uh, had started hat shop and they had mannequins there and on the mannequins well, were the hats. And so they were just cut off heads. And the story is that the daughter who had survived the camps for whatever moment in this particular time looked over at these head just these heads, these disembodied heads. And that reminded her of the corpses that she saw in the camps. And it created this huge traumatic memory. She, she was lost. I mean, she was, sort of had a psychic break. And the mother had to drive her to the nearest mental institution that they had then and had to repeatedly restrain her because the daughter was trying to fling herself from the car and commit suicide. That is the story my mother told me when I went to ask her for advice on how to keep the sun hat standing up straight. So that's an example of how this trauma from a different time, a different place, can suddenly interrupt what is just our daily lives. I wonder because, the, as you said, the 
initial catalyst for this conversation is that you brought to your mother a hat, which you loved, which had been a gift. Right. Once you heard this story, did the meaning of the hat for you in your daily life transmute into something completely different, a reminder of that story? Absolutely. And I think that's that's exactly the kind of experience you live sort of in two worlds where there is a sense of security and safety. But on the other hand, sort of one foot is in this other world where these crazy, horrific things, unimaginable things happened. And I think that's why when people ask, sort of, why are American Jews and I'm first generation American still so sensitive about this? Well, for me, it's because these these stories are still there. They're still present in our conversation. They're still present in our lives. So when there are uh, anti-Semitic um, slogans put on local candidates, you know, for governor, or when there are anti-Semitic graffitis painted on walls at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, you know, that these things are triggering, that they push us into this other world. In the years and decades which you've been doing this work, both personally in discerning your own history and the history of your family, but also academically teaching the history of the Holocaust. Are there significant ways in which you felt the conversation about the atrocity change? I think there used to be an assumption that most people knew the facts of the Holocaust. And what's happened, I think, and I talked to my students about this a lot, but there are a couple of things. One, a lot of people are now getting their information online and they're getting their interpretation of events from online sources and those range in their accuracy. And so they may or may not really know one, the facts of the Shoah, the Holocaust, the extent of it, the extremity of it. And so different interpretations are sort of floating around in the ether, like Whoopi Goldberg's comment, you know, that it's sort of white people against white people and race had nothing to do with it. To say something like that is to really misunderstand that the Jews were considered not Aryan, not white, of an entirely different race, not even human, and therefore not worthy of survival. The other thing I think that's an impact is the Hollywoodization of the Holocaust. So often um, people are getting their information from Hollywood movies. Now, those tend to do a number of different things. They tend to really emphasize spectacle and heroes. And so often the Americans are heroes, um, which this exhibit calls into question a little bit. But the horrors of the death camps, the real horrors of the death camps, almost never portrayed. I mean, you cannot bring people into a film and actually show what the show was like and have, let's say, images of an infant being tortured and a mother committing suicide. But that's the reality of the show. So there is also a little bit of a concern that as the survivors pass, that this history is not as well known and as well taught as we might have assumed it to be. You weave a fine thread in your work. And you acknowledge outright the dismissal that the Holocaust happened or the minimizing of what the Holocaust was is re-traumatizing. That fact needs to sit at the head of any conversation had with survivors or the general public if you're going to move forward in a way that is productive and healing. But your primary tool for examining the Holocaust has been memoir, has been first-person accounts, family members speaking with family members about what that experience was like for them. And because of trauma, because of the loss of an an incredible number of people, and because of the time that has passed since the events of the Holocaust, there are more and more holes in that narrative. Can you talk about memoir as a necessary tool in order to teach people the lived experience of the Holocaust, but also kind of an imperfect one for capturing exactly what happened? Yeah, that's you're exactly right. It's imperfect. And that's one of the major concerns that early scholars of this of this of the Shoah race that it begins actually with the first generation, because if the first generation could not speak about the actual horrors and the trauma they experienced, then we've already lost our first witness accounts. So when the second generation of the third generation memoirs comes into the into the fore, it's really primarily about talking about their own experience of what it is like to inherit that trauma. 
the historical sort of research that gets done is, you know, by these memoirs, largely done by amateurs. Uh, they're not historians. They're not political scientists. They're just people who are going back and trying to find their family members. And so there will be, I think, some gaps in knowledge. So that's the imperfection that we have to live with. But for me, the, the greatest imperfection is not so much in these small details, but it's in the fact that we can never, ever, ever, ever do the evil that took place during the Shoah justice, that we can't get to that real horror because most of the survivors were unable to articulate it. And that's something we really have to keep in mind in any story that we tell about the Shoah. We're essentially minimizing it and we're essentially making it palatable for our consumption. We have to sort of do it in order to, to proceed with our lives. So we make it more comfortable for us. That was Professor Daphne Desser speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. If you want to learn more about Dresser's work with the stories of Holocaust survivors, you can attend her talk tonight at 7 p.m. It's part of the Americans and the Holocaust pop-up exhibit at UH West Oahu's Campbell Library. You'll find links at our website later today. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we plan to spend the hour with Congressman Kai Kahele. We look back at his first year in our nation's capital, and we look ahead to his future. It's a live call-in show. Got questions about Red Hill or anything else? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, and email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can find all of our shows archived online if you want to listen back to something. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of The Conversation. 